Turn now to Genesis 21. We had our scripture reading from Colossians 1, which speaks of the preeminency of Christ and that all things will be united in Christ. And that will be a point that we make today as we go through Genesis 21. As we have covered 20 chapters of Genesis now up to this point, we've, we've gone into detail and looked closely at exactly what is happening in these accounts and in, this, in these narratives from Genesis 1 and 2 now. But we've also looked at big picture themes, big picture ideas. We've repeated that all of Scripture is one great big story of God's redemption. We've repeated that God is sovereign. We've repeated that, that God is God. And uh, we've repeated that God is faithful and that God keeps His promises and God always accomplishes that which He sets out to accomplish. And that God has the power to destroy and He has the power to raise up. And, uh, and really, just in that summary, I hope that you have a clear picture and I pray that I've done a good job as pastor so far Pointing out the fact, yes, we're going through Genesis. We've looked at Adam and Eve. We've looked at Noah. We've looked at Cain and Abel. We've looked at Lamech. We've looked at Nimrod. We've looked at Abraham. We've looked at Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We've looked at all of these names. But chiefly, what all of the Scripture is about is God and His glory. And ultimately, even within that, you say, well, God and His glory, and what was the plan of God? The plan is for Christ to have preeminence in all things. And for all things to be united in Christ. And from from Genesis 3, the moment that we read the words where God promised that the head of the serpent would be crushed under the foot of the seed of the woman, from that point forward, all of Scripture, as believers now, when we look at Scripture, we, we should say, well, from that point forward, All things are pointing to Christ. All things are moving towards Christ so that He will have preeminence. He is the promised one. He is the snake crusher. Right? He is the Redeemer. He is Savior. He is Lord. And as as I said, I I pray that I've, I've done a good job as pastor of just planting that in your head over and over and over and over again. Yes, we're covering Genesis. Yes, we're looking at these origin stories, these Uh, The origin of all things. But I hope that we have seen clearly that all of it is about God and His glory. God and His glory. Because really, if you think about it, up to this point, if you look at man's track record through the first 20 chapters of Genesis, Genesis, you say, well, what is man's track record? We've seen God and His glory and His sovereignty and His power and His faithfulness and His ability to accomplish what what He intends to accomplish. What have we seen from mankind? Sin. And then we've also seen sin and an abundance of sin in the life of Abraham. And, And we see with Noah, we see that Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord and After the flood, Noah made a sacrifice and worshipped. And we've seen Abraham be faithful in in his life since the call of God in his life. But even in the life of Abraham, even in the life of Noah, in the life of Adam and Eve, we've seen sin. We've seen the fact that there is a need for the head of the serpent to be crushed because of our sin. And so now, in chapter 21, I, 
I hope that we're all excited. We've been talking about Abraham and this promised son, Isaac. Those of us who are familiar with the Scripture narrative, we know that Isaac was born to Abraham. And so some of you all have probably been sitting on pins and needles for weeks thinking, Caleb takes his sweet time. And ever since we started with Abraham, I've just been waiting for Isaac to show up on the scene. And it has just been week after week after week after week after week. And Isaac is still not here. Well, today's the day. Finally, after, after Ishmael has been born up to this point, Abraham and Sarah's plan for, for Hagar to get involved, and Ishmael is born, and Ishmael's not the promised son. We've seen the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen two other sons born to Lot and his daughters, out of which came nations that were enemies of God's people. But up to this point, we have yet to see the birth of the promised son, Isaac. And so with that, we turn our attention to verse 1 of Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now those might seem like seven verses of Scripture That are just announcing the birth of a son. But I beg of you and I urge all of us to consider. We've been going through Genesis. Those of you who have been here week after week as we've gone through Genesis. Think about everything that just got summed up in seven verses. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said. Four very simple words. As He had said. Before the Christian, we can tie a lot to those four words. As he had said, God is faithful. God will accomplish what he intends to accomplish. God will make good on all of his promises. When God told Abraham and Sarah, I will give you a son, he meant it. It was a promise attached to another promise. You will be the father of a great nation and in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God intends to make good on that promise. Sarah was barren. Not only was Sarah barren, she was past the age of childbearing. But yet, God gave her a son. Abraham was a hundred years old and that as good as dead. And yet God provides a son. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Sarah conceived. Those are two words that are miraculous. Again, even when she was of the age of childbearing, she was barren. I cannot stress that enough. You say, Caleb, you repeated that in almost every single sermon where Sarah comes up. For good reason. She was barren. When we think about Abraham and Isaac, It is a miracle that God in His mercy and grace called Abraham 
out of his place, out of his home, and said, I will make of you a great nation. From Abraham comes Israel. Israel did not exist. It is a miracle. It is the grace and mercy of God that the holy God of all creation said, out of sinners, I will make a people for my own possession. And Abraham is the root of the nation of Israel. And then on top of that, he tells Abraham, I will give you a son. Abraham, who is married to a barren woman. And by the time Isaac comes along, Abraham is a hundred. And Sarah is barren and past the age of childbearing. Yet we read, Sarah conceived. God who brings into existence things that don't exist. Just as Paul says in Romans chapter 4. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. That's important. Again, that Hagar had a son. This is the son which Sarah bore to him. It's The author here, he's, he wants you to understand. Not the son that Hagar had, the son that Sarah had. Sarah conceived. Abraham called his, his son Isaac the son that Sarah had. So that there's no confusion here. Name him Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. And if we think of what we've covered so far, there was a time in which Abraham laughed in God's face, so to speak. No, let surely Ishmael. Let Ishmael be raised up before you. There was a time where Sarah laughed. And Sarah's, Sarah's event there was even more laughable in the sense that the angel of the Lord said, she's just laughing. No, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't laugh. And now they name their son Isaac, which means he laughs. And Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Now, I've only, I've only heard stories and, whole, and heard women share their own testimonies. Uh, I know it's 2023 and a lot of people are confused nowadays. But just in case you're confused, I have never nor can I ever have a child. That's the truth, just in case you were confused on that. So, But I have heard women share their testimonies and stories of giving birth and the great joy that they have. And I've also heard men and women share stories of heartache and pain after hearing from doctors and medical professionals that you're unable to conceive. You're not able to have children. And in those cases, years down the road, when... A miracle occurs. And a woman who was told you're not able to have children all of a sudden finds out she's pregnant. She's always wanted to be a mom. They've tried and they were told they could not and then all of a sudden you're having a baby. No, not you. (laughs) The joy... And the excitement that is possessed by that woman who was told you cannot conceive, but yet now you're having a baby. If you've, if you've never heard a testimony like that or, or, or heard from a woman or a family that was told you can't have children and then they were able to conceive, then you, don't, you haven't even really experienced in any way, shape, or form the joy or excitement. But let me just share with you, this might not come as a, as a shocker and it shouldn't be, but... The woman who was once told you can't conceive who then conceives, they're typically pretty overjoyed. 
They're typically full of joy. They're typically very excited that God has granted them a child. I don't think it's too much of a stretch for us to say Sarah was probably overjoyed. And they named their son Isaac because God has made laughter for me. Where once I I could not conceive, I, I could not carry life within me, we've got a son. But then also, others will laugh when they hear, I don't know if y'all heard about this, but Abraham, he's a hundred years old. And Sarah, at her old age, she is nursing a baby. (laughs) God has made laughter for me. But one thing is certain. When it comes to the birth of Isaac, there is no doubt about it, It's a miraculous birth. It's a promised birth that only God Himself could have brought into existence. A barren woman past the age of childbearing conceives and the father is a hundred years old? Yes. Because it was God who promised, I will give you a son. You and Sarah, not you and Hagar. You and Sarah will have a son. He is the promised son. And so we see God's faithfulness to give Isaac. We see this, you could call it a laughter motif. That Abraham had his moment where he laughs. Sarah has his, or her moment where she laughs. And then Isaac is born and they name him Isaac, which means he laughs. And there's great joy. And that joy points to God's faithfulness to carry out His plans the way that He intends to carry out His plans. And so let's take a moment to look at things that have been brought into existence just through 20 chapters in Genesis. Well, all of creation. Let's start there. Genesis chapter 1. All of creation has been brought into existence and all of creation, there was a time in which it did not exist. God has brought all things into existence. God has brought chiefly mankind into existence with Adam and Eve. Let's look more specifically just at Abraham and Sarah. Israel has been brought into existence. Now, we're not there yet where the specific term Israel is mentioned. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. We're not there yet, but we know. We know what this is leading to. We know, we know that there's a reason why Abraham, uh, we sing that terribly annoying song, Father Abraham, in children's church and VBSs all across America. There's a reason why he has that moniker, Father Abraham. You shall be the father of a great nation, and in you shall the nation of the earth be blessed. Israel has been brought into existence. Israel didn't exist. Ishmael and the Ishmaelites will be brought into existence. They didn't exist. From Lot and his two daughters, we have the Edomites and the Amorites. They didn't exist beforehand. But we also have covenants and promises that didn't exist before the call of Abraham. When God calls Abraham out of the land in which he grew up, and he says, go to a land that I will show you, and you will be the father of a great nation, and in you shall the nation. That promise, that covenant didn't exist beforehand. God brought it into existence. The promise that the head of the serpent would be crushed didn't exist until God said, His head will be crushed. 
the flood. The complete and total judgment of all creation, save for one family, the flood didn't exist. That type of judgment, that level of judgment didn't exist until God brought it into existence. The mercy and grace that was shown to Adam and Eve, the mercy and grace that was shown to to Noah, the, the mercy and grace that is shown to Abraham, the mercy and grace that is shown to all people. Now those things have existed with God for all of eternity, but the displays of that mercy and grace, the, the, the display of God's love, and the displays of God's faithfulness, from our vantage point, they didn't exist until these things started to happen. And then we see God is faithful, God is loving, He's merciful, He's kind. But we also see that God is capable of pouring out great wrath. And judgment. And he builds up as he pleases. And he tears down as he pleases. He brings into existence. And he takes out of existence as he pleases. Sodom and Gomorrah were brought to nothing. And it was the will of God. To destroy them. Surely. God can do as he pleases. With the inhabitants of earth. And the inhabitants of heaven. Surely our God sits in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Now, we move from there to verse 8. The child Isaac grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And so she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with, along with the child. And sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So we see that Ishmael mocks Isaac, and we see a separation. We're not going to go to Galatians 4 today. We may do that at a later time, because this is a distinction that needs to be made. But later in Scripture, specifically Paul in Galatians, he actually uses this event to say that there, there are children of the slave woman, and there are children of the, the children of promise, the free woman. And here we see a clear distinction made. Now, Sarah says, send her away. Ishmael will not be an heir with my son Isaac. Abraham is troubled. Abraham doesn't necessarily want to just send Ishmael and Hagar away. But God tells Abraham, do not be displeased. Do this thing. Whatever Sarah has said, do it. Because Ishmael isn't going to be an heir with Isaac. And it is through Isaac that your people will be named. They will carry His name. And so Abraham sends them away. And that clear distinction, the slave woman and her child separate. They, they are cut off, if you will, from the commonwealth of Abraham's household. The commonwealth of Israel, ultimately. But they are not completely forgotten 
or completely cut off from God. In fact, God says, I will make a great nation of Ishmael. We know that has previously already been told to Hagar. That Ishmael will become a great nation. He will be the father of, of twelve princes. And so Abraham does this and he gives them very meager provisions. But he gives them some provisions and they go wandering in the wilderness. And in verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look upon the death of the child. You want to talk about a hopeless situation. They're in the wilderness. Their supplies have run out. And Hagar here is clearly to the point where she understands he's about to die. I'll probably die shortly after. But I cannot let myself look upon the agony and the pain and the death of my son. And so she separates herself a pretty good ways off. Let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. So it seemed it would seem to be that Hagar and the boy himself were weeping and crying and in agony. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And so now we're, we're, we're turning our attention from the child of promise, Isaac, and the, the covenant promises to Abraham and, and his household. And we're looking at Ishmael. And we've talked about this previously, but from Ishmael come people that are enemies of God, enemies of God's people. But we see clearly that God Himself is making sure that Ishmael becomes a great nation. God Himself tending to and overseeing the development of this nation, of this people group, that will be enemies of God. Enemies to His people. And at this point, we may ask ourselves, why would God go to such great lengths to preserve a line of people that would be His enemies? And that would be enemies to his people that would cause great strife and great warring between them and his people. And so we repeat the refrain that God is sovereign. He does as he pleases. And God has a purpose in all things in which he does. There is a purpose. There is a, a plan. A, a divine plan and purpose in this preservation of Ishmael. First and foremost, God said that he would do it. God had already told Hagar, your son's going to be fine. He's going to become a great nation. Now, He also said your son will be a wild donkey of a man. That he will dwell in strife and warrings all of his life. Now, here in these verses, God told Abraham, I will make a nation of your son of the slave woman because he is your offspring. He is still, there is a connection, there is a tie there to Abraham. Sarah is not his mother, but Abraham is his father. And God says, because he is your offspring, 
I will make of him a great nation. And so there's a connection to God's faithfulness and God's promises here in the provision and protection of Ishmael and Hagar. We see the hopelessness of their situation. She expected them to die. And I would say a bit of a connection here, a bit of foreshadowing, and we'll come back to this at the end of the sermon to to wrap it up, but could it be that there's a bit of foreshadowing that those who are cut off, those who are far off, those who are hopeless, there will come a time where their eyes will be opened to the provision of water, namely living water. That will enable them to be strengthened and to be built up. But again, we'll come back to that. But we see clearly that God intervenes. Hagar, fear not. God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. Why would God see to it? That Ishmael not only lives, but becomes a great nation. He is faithful to all of His promises. Again, from from Genesis 1 all the way up until now. Just look at God's track record through 20 chapters in Genesis. It's a perfect track record. Spoiler alert, if you were to look at God's track record from Genesis 20 up until right now, in 2023... Still going to be a perfect track record. God is faithful to keep all of His promises. God is over. God reigns over. God is sovereign over the called and the uncalled. The saved and the unsaved. God is over His covenant people. But He is also over those who are not a part of His covenant people. It's not as though God looked upon this situation and said, Oh, well, Ishmael and Sarah, they're not truly a part of my covenant people, so I can't protect them. I can't provide for them. They're not a a true part of my covenant people, so I can't do anything to help them. No. Which is why Scripture, God is able to tell us through His Word that it rains on the just and the unjust. That's why God was able to tell Pharaoh in Exodus, for this reason I raised you up. God is able to raise up pagan rulers and Christian rulers. God is able to raise up pagan nations and faithful nations. God is able to do as He pleases. And ultimately, all that He pleases, all that He intends, is connected to the overarching theme of all things being united in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. God raises up and brings down as He pleases. We may be tempted at this point, at, at, at junctures such as this in Scripture, we may be tempted to say things like, well, I don't know that I would have done that. <laughs> I don't know that I would have taken care if I was omniscient and knew all things, and I knew for a fact that from this man were going to come my enemies and enemies to my people. I don't know that I would have made sure that it, not only did he survive, but that he thrived, I'm not sure I would have been able to do that. God is God. He does as He pleases. He does as He intends. 
And might I say this, when we find ourselves in situations where we might be thinking or even saying, I'm not sure I would have done that, or I would have done that differently. What we need to do rather is look at ourselves and tell ourselves, zip it. Hush. You're talking nonsense. We don't compare God to ourselves and what we would have done. We look at what God has done. And there may be times where we say, I don't really understand why I did it that way. But as soon as we have that thought, I don't understand. That should be overtaken with the thought of, oh yeah, God is God. He does as He pleases. He is accomplishing His good and perfect plans. And even if I don't understand it, I'm reading about plans that are perfect, that are good, and plans that ultimately result in Christ having preeminence in all things. So I will rejoice. God raises up and brings down as He pleases. Think about the things that we've seen just in Genesis thus far. Um, You can even look at Adam and Eve. They were in the garden. God removed them from the garden and cut off the garden, the tree of life from them. Look at the, the, the people that were raised up during the time between that and the flood. The flood, God destroyed all the things that He had created and He preserved only one family. We looked... We saw where he easily took out the Tower of Babel and all of the plans of man. But let's go back real quick. Right after the flood, all of the peoples of the earth came from the three sons of Noah and their wives. Now, whose plan was that? That was God's plan. And God God made sure that from that, all of the nations of the earth came out of that line. God here is able to... He's in the process of raising up a nation, making Isaac the father of a great nation. We know that throughout Israel's history... At any time, God would send them into bondage, bring them out of bondage. God would punish them. God would bless them. God was able to raise up Israel. God was able to bring Israel down. God is in full control of all things. He raises up and brings down as He pleases. God Himself brings nations into existence. Israel, Ishmaelites, Edomites, Amorites. Those are just some that we've talked about through our Genesis study thus far. Where did they all come from? Ultimately, God brought them into existence. You say, well, well, how does that matter in the grand scheme of things? Like, we're still talking about God making sure that the enemies of Israel are brought into existence. Why would God want so many nations that would hate His people? Why would God want so many nations that hate Him. How can God receive the glory in that? One point that I want to make before we wrap up. In this narrative of Ishmael and in the fact that we know that God is sovereign over all people, even when we're talking to non-believers... We might find ourselves talking to somebody who claims to be an atheist. We can still look at them and we can say with confidence, not with arrogance, but we can say with confidence to the non-believer, right here in this moment is right where God would have you be. And even though you claim to be an atheist, you claim to be a non-believer, God is not far from you in the sense that He reigns. He is over all of His creation. 
in Acts 17 when Paul is addressing uh, the people in the Areopagus. He, he actually says, you have, a, you have this altar to the unknown God. He's not far from you. And he says, God calls all people to repent. Commands all people everywhere to repent. Because we know the one true God of all creation, and because we know who He is and His attributes, and we know how He operates, just because somebody says, well, I'm a non-believer. I don't even believe that there is a God. That does not change the fact that we can tell that person with confidence, no, God has accomplished His purposes in your life, whether you acknowledge Him or not. And He still has full authority over your life to take it or to let it continue right now. Because He is the one true God of all creation. And again, we ought to take great confidence in that as well. I ended last week's sermon with saying that if you're here today, you're, you chose to be here today, you said, I'm going to get ready and I'm going to come to church, but you're right where God has sovereignly placed you today. Now, we can rest in that because we acknowledge that God is the God of all creation. He has created us. He has granted us one birth, a physical birth, and He has also granted us a second birth in which we rejoice and we've repented of our sins and placed faith in Christ Jesus. But I wanted to point that out. Don't ever fall into the trap as a Christian that, well, God can kind of only do what people will allow Him to do and God can only... God can only operate in areas where He is welcomed. No, God does whatever He pleases at all times with all people. Period. Now, specifically, why would God bring all these nations into existence if He knew that these nations would be His enemy and be enemies of His people? Like, what, what's the point? Well, let's go back to the promises. What did He tell Abraham? You will be the father of a great nation, Israel. But then he says, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Right? God brings nations into existence. Resulting in more nations from which to save sinners. Resulting in greater glory in Christ who saves. Who saves people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ who unites all people of the faith. In Christ who people who once were far off are now brought near by the blood of the cross. And it doesn't matter if it's Asia, Australia, Russia, Africa, Ireland, America. It doesn't matter. Anyone who is of the faith is one in Christ Jesus. People from all the nations of the earth are at peace with one another through the blood of the cross. People who once were enemies of God and enemies of the people of God are made His friends and furthermore, His adopted sons and daughters through Christ Jesus. And so bringing these nations into existence, these nations who will be His enemies, these nations who will hate His people, these nations who will hate Him, ultimately 
brings glory to God and gives Christ preeminence in all things because out of those nations, out of those peoples who hate God and hate His people, out of those nations will come many sons and daughters that have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Which results in Christ having preeminence in all things. We can know with certainty as God's people. There is a purpose in all things. There's a purpose in your life right now. Think about your enemies. Think about the people that you just can't get along with. That you you can't stand them or they can't stand you or both. Think about the hardships that you've experienced. The trials that you've experienced. None of that is without purpose. There's a reason that your enemies exist. There's a reason that you exist in the life of your enemy. There's reasons why we exist here in Glenville. There's reasons why we exist in Tattnall, in Georgia, in the U.S. There's reasons why God has placed us where He's placed us. There's reasons why God has brought us into existence. There's reasons why God brings our children into existence. There is always a purpose. Mentioned this in Sunday school. Most people on earth, now it's becoming so godless that people aren't even saying this anymore. But a lot of people that you meet will still say something along the lines of, well, I do believe everything happens for a reason. But it's only the true believer that can say everything happens for a reason. And I can tell you a little bit about what that reason is. Because God is sovereign and He is working all things according to His purposes. And by the way, Jesus is Lord and He will have preeminence in all things and every knee will bow. And we can have that confidence as Christians. And oh, oh, what joy we do often forfeit. Not only by not taking things to God in prayer, but not acknowledging who God really is. Not, not acknowledging His faithfulness. Not acknowledging His power and authority over all things. Not acknowledging the fact that He exercises that sovereignty and power over all things. For His people, He says, I'm working all things together for good. And so we forfeit joy. We forfeit peace. We forfeit rest in our souls when we don't acknowledge who God is. You don't have to turn there. We read from Romans 9 last week. I'll just reference it. Paul says in Romans 9 that what if God desiring to make His power known endures with much patience the vessels of wrath so that His grace or His mercy could be more clearly seen in the vessels of mercy. There's a God-given purpose why every single person that's alive right now, that will be alive, that has existed, there's a God-ordained purpose why they have lived, why they have been here, why they were given time on God's earth. And God will receive the glory in the good and in the bad, as we might call it. In the positive and in the negative, God will receive glory. And just briefly, if you say, well, how can God receive glory through, through sin and, and through crimes? And What if those people never get punished on earth? What if, what if there is no justice? That chiefly is the way that He will get glory. There will be perfect justice. Every sin that has ever been committed 
will be addressed, will be punished. Now for the believer, we say our sins have already been addressed. Our sins have already been punished. The wrath of God has already been poured out on our sin. But for those who are non-believers, for those who never will believe, they will receive the fullness of the wrath of God and be cast away forever into a sinner's hell. And do you know what? The judgment of wicked sinners brings glory to God in His justice and in His righteousness. Even the judgment of sinners brings glory to Him because He alone has the authority to perfectly judge and execute justice on every sin that has ever been committed. And so God will receive the glory Christ will have the preeminence in all things. We see the birth of Isaac. God is faithful. God is good. Nothing can stand in the way of God. He will accomplish all of His purposes. We see the provision and protection of Ishmael who had already been born. And we see God's goodness in allowing him to grow and to thrive and become the father of a great nation himself. And even though that we're, we're reading of the origin of a godless nation, through Christ, through Christ, even those today that still have ties to that lineage or any other godless lineage, those who are raised in pagan homes, those who are raised in atheistic homes, non-believing homes, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can be brought near and be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Which takes us all the way back to Genesis 3. The head of the serpent has been crushed. And it was Christ the Son and His finished work upon the cross that defeated sin and death for all who believe. May we rejoice. May we give God glory for His great power and His faithfulness and His steadfast love which endures forever. For His mercy and grace which saves sinners. <coughs> May we rejoice. May our faith be strengthened for those of us that we say, well, I came here this morning I didn't really know what I believe or I don't really think that I'm a Christian. Or The only way, the only mediator between God and man is the man Christ Jesus. The only way to have peace with the Father is through Christ the Son. He said upon the cross that it is finished. The blood has been shed. The sacrifice has been made. All who believe will have eternal life. May today be the day of your salvation. For those of us who are here as believers, again, I pray that we are able to rejoice and give God the glory. And I pray that our faith is strengthened as we consider these things. May God truly receive the glory. Let's close in a word of prayer.